my GMC license is at risk. But I'm going to propose that the patient revolution in the in its fullest capacity <laughs> go into room 101. I don't believe you're going here. <laughs> <laughs> So hello, welcome to episode 23 of the Digital Doctor podcast. Um, my name is Ed Wallet, and Stephen Wing is here. Hello. And we have a nice, relaxed episode today. Yeah. Well, it might, it might not be relaxed because I think we're probably going to get quite wound up. No, uh, no, I, I, pr- I promised myself I'd remain calm. This is like an exorcism for us, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about our Room 101 of things in medicine stroke medical IT that drive us, obviously, as Room 101, the things that drive us absolutely insane. Um, and we're both going to be hosts. So Steam's going to tell me one thing that drives him insane, and I'm going to quiz him on it and then decide whether it goes in, and he's going to then do it to me. I don't know if I find it quite difficult to narrow it down to... I mean, we're going to do at least three, I think, each. And I find it quite difficult to pick my top three. Yeah, I had a list, quite a big list. Um and it was actually it was quite it was quite nice to actually write down all the things that bo- uh, b- bother me. It's like cathartic. Kind yeah, of it was like a catharsis. So that was the catharsis, and now this is the exorcism. Yeah, let's do it. Hmm. So um, I, I enjoyed uh, Wei Kyung's episode with uh, what was he called now? Medium Technical Marcus. Is that his new name? Yeah, Medium Technical Marcus. Oh, okay. Was that in the podcast? I didn't miss that bit. Yeah, he called it. Yeah, that's what he said. Oh, okay. That was good. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that too. About wikis. Wikis, medical wikis. How do you get your IT password set up? Absolutely. That kind of stuff. So if you haven't listened to that, go and listen to it. Um, and also, while you're at that, you should definitely check out episode 19 and episode 15 as well. I think they're essential. Yes, definitely. But those aren't in our room 101. No, no. Yeah, we've had a lot of things, I guess, that we spoke about that could potentially be Room 101 topics for me. Actually, maybe we should start by going through the podcast that would go in the Room 101. And would, be that, would that be too controversial? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm trying to predict what you're going to say. I'm going to say we shouldn't do it. <laughs> it's probably not a good idea. Yeah. Leave, if, you, if, you, if you're into Room 101, leave a comment saying in Room 101 on any of the podcasts that you don't like. And as a disclaimer, so uh, all, all of the things we say tonight are going to be opinion, of course. And if there's any sort of feedback or comments or, you know, lawsuits, then please contact a Dr. Ed Wallet. Yeah, my legal yeah. team's really extensive. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, don't. Yeah, we're like the, well, usually we're like the BBC. We don't, actually, that's rubbish. We're not like the BBC. We're always biased. <laughs> but but you know that's the point of a podcast we're not the news yeah you can you know, choose to download it if you want to and listen to it yeah or... so if you're not if you're not interested if you're interested in bbc then turn the podcast off now yeah anyway let's go on with it go on you go first so room 101 what do you mean i go first i judge first or no no, no. you uh <clears throat> exercise first. I, ex- I exercise first okay so the first thing in my room 101 is the expression by medics in general when they talk about wanting to do quality improvement or like learning to code or something, I don't have enough time. 
Right. That expression, I don't have enough time. Oh, I would like create the most amazing medical record, but I don't have enough time. Oh, I would learn to code so I could like get more involved in medical IT, but I don't have enough time. Okay, so what are you putting in Room 101? That expression or the person who says that? Or, or, or the attitude? Oh, God, no. I think the expression because it's code for something else. Okay, all right. So tell us about it. Okay, so people say I don't have, an, I don't have enough time when they don't really want to do something, but they want to seem like they could do it and you know, tell people that they could do this and it would be amazing, but they don't actually really want to do it and they don't have the motivation. So they just add that notorious, I don't have enough time on the end of the sentence. Right. And it drives me insane because people go around saying, oh, you know, I would do this, I would do that. Oh, but you know, I just don't, I just don't have enough time. Right. You know, and I don't think, I don't think that's valid. So I think if you, you know, you can always, like, if you really want to do something, if you're really passionate about something, you will find the time to do it, particularly if it's learning. Like, the context that annoys me most is when it's like, I would learn to do this, but I don't have enough time. I would learn to do that. Like, that's just completely invalid for me. And you hear it a lot when people are talking about learning to code, don't you? Oh, God. Yeah, particularly learning to code. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for me, that's just code for, you know, I can't, I don't really want to do it. Like, if you want to learn to code, if you want to do that, you can do it. Like, I learned to code while doing an A&E job, you know, working, you know, 60 hours a week um, and running, you know, a company in the background and learning to code like, because I wanted to do it. You did it whilst you were doing A&E? Yeah. Wow. Where, what, what was I doing when I started? I think no, you, were the, you were on the train back from doing a lecture thing with me. Ah, uh, yeah, we went down to uh, Exeter, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you showed and I was, me. I was watching a tutorial on something, and I was like, "Oh, just watch this," and I think you'll you'll quite you'll get it really easily. And you watched me like, "Yeah, I do get that." You watching Peep Code? That was it. That was it. Peep Code. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent Peep Code is series. a set of video, like video tutorials, that teach you how to code, but they don't exist anymore. They were taken over by Plural Site. Yeah, and Jeffrey Gosenbach actually works for them now. It's a good guy. Uh, Plural site. Yeah. He's yeah, like yeah. the head of digital, uh, I don't know, something. Digital so, stuff. okay, right, I'm supposed to play devil's advocate with you, but actually I really agree. No, so no, no, you don't difficult. have to play devil's advocate. You, you well, know. I can't let it straight through, can I? No, you can't let it straight through. Because this will be a really short podcast. Yeah, that's true. Which is, uh, and then we'll end up with like sort of 10 things that we're just bitching about life. Okay. So, um, it, it reminds me, when you sort of said your explanation, it reminds me a lot of your talk at the last conference, which was titled... Ideas are garbage, right? That's right, yeah. <clears throat> and the whole premise of it was that just because you have idea doesn't mean anything really because there are lots of people that have had the idea before you. There'll be lots of people who have had ideas similar or better to that and there are lots of people who have that idea in the future. But it doesn't really matter unless you do something about it and make it work. Yeah, and that's the thing people forget. Like they for they think, <clears throat> and this actually, uh, NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, were going to be another part of my room 101 but it dropped off the list but actually it kind of fits here as well like people who think that when they as soon as they've had the idea you know like they've just solved you know the mystery of life with quantum physics um they think that once they've had the idea it's basically happened okay but they don't understand that actually the idea is the is actually the easy bit um the actual hard bit is actually doing the work and that sounds really obvious but a lot of people just go like oh i had this great idea you know and and you know 
you need to sign this document because, you know, you might steal it. And they don't actually realize that between that idea and the reality of their thing happening is probably a good thousand or two's worth hours worth of work and pain and suffering and communication and emails and whatever. Always um, Malcolm Gladwell puts it the 10,000 hour rule, right? Yeah, well, that's to be really good at something. Yeah, to be expert. So, okay, my uh, I suppose my retort should be something along the lines of uh, a, lo- a lot of our audience are going to be doctors, obviously. Mm-hmm. And we're sort of busy doing other things, looking after patients. And our sort of primary role and responsibility is to look after them. And, yeah, um, and there's lots of things associated with that, reading up on things, making sure that your practice is up to scratch. Uh, doing clinical audits and all of that kind of stuff so with the example of learning to code but you have to prioritize your life you know family and everything come first it learning to code is probably something that everyone really wants to do because it's awesome uh and opens your (laughs) eyes well i don't think necessarily they do but anyway go on but they do if they say they do you know i'd love to learn to code but okay i don't have time okay fair enough is that not a product of someone prioritizing their life and they put things you know before that in terms of you know their day-to-day doctoring job their um efforts to increase their marketability as a doctor and improve their career and get a job pass exams see their family decorate their new nursery you know that kind of stuff yeah but if you know if if you well then just don't say it like don't say it in the way that you know, you're so important that um, it's not, you know, you don't need to do it or, you know, that like, I, I understand what you're saying. You're saying people's lives are busy. Why can't they say they don't have enough time? Like, yeah. I get that. Um, but often that phrase, I'd love, I'd like to do this, but I don't have enough time is couched within the context of like a big idea to make patients' lives better or, you know, to improve, improve the, the way that they work day to day. Um, with some amazing new product, um, and when it's put in, in, in when it's couched in within that, you know, it feels, it feels like, just the wrong sort of phrase. Like, it, 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 I, I don't like it. Do you know what gets me about it though? Is that it almost seems like a contract with yourself. So, I took some time um, to list all of the projects that I was involved in or wanted to do or they're on my mind. So I just wrote this re- really big long list of things that I was doing, that I should be doing, that I wanted to do and just wrote them all out. And there are a lot and there were a lot that I haven't really touched or thought about in a long time. And a lot of them are creating a lot of anxiety about the fact that, you know, oh yeah, I keep remembering that I should be doing this and that little things would come up and they would remind me there were ideas that I'd had and I wanted to do. And I always say, yeah, yeah, no, I'll get to that. I just don't have time at the moment. And, you know, when things are a bit, you know, and I almost think that you need to um, take stock of who you are, what your priorities are and values are and what you're capable of doing. Yeah. And, and I guess if you ever come out with the line, I'd love to do this, but I don't have time. I think you've kind of already made the decision that you're never going to do it. Yeah, 100%. And if you said something like, this month's really busy, but next month, you know, I've got a couple of days annual leave or I've got a few days off after my nights. I've bought a book. I'm going to nail it then. Yeah. This is when I'll start. That's a very different statement, isn't it? Yeah. And I I almost think that 90% of people who say that, if you said to them, a hypothetical world, okay, you now have the next two months off work to do that thing, they wouldn't do it. Um, yeah, they go and play frisbee in the park. Yeah, um, but you're right. It is something to do with prioritization, and 
looking at your projects, you know, and whether that's, you know, just home life or work life and the various aspects of that. Um, and saying, you You're know, being the same though, aren't they? Oh yeah. I'm always in the same place <laughs> doing the same things surrounded by animals <laughs> and my wife. Um, but you know, they don't, they haven't gone through that list and, and aggressively said, mm. no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, well, just even asking yourself, Susie, am I ever really going to do this? I've been saying I'm going to do it for six months. Nothing's happened. Is this ever going to materialize? Am I ever going to get around to it? And if so, when? Yeah. I'm not saying that it's not true that people don't have time for things. I think they, they do. But it's when it's couched in a sort of, you know, I want to, you know, I th I've got this really great idea, but I don't have enough time. Like, I just feel that that what they should probably say is, um, I've had this really great idea, but I don't really have the energy to pursue it at the moment. And stop pretending to themselves. Or actually stop pretending that there's this magical thing called time. Like, because time, like, I think, I think I, I've said this before in another podcast, it's not time that is the problem, it's energy that's the problem. Yeah. Like, managing things according to how much time they're going to take is actually almost impossible. It's very difficult to predict how, how long something's going to take. And this is going to come down to one of my other room one-on-ones later. But it's really difficult when you start a project to figure it, to say, oh, this is, is going to take me a thousand hours. And even if you do say that, you can't evaluate that in any meaningful way because we're not used to evaluating those sorts of things. Mm. But what you what you can say, and which is a much better way of saying it, is I'd love to do this, but I just don't have the energy. Like I don't have, you know, by the time I've done work and behind the things, I just haven't got the haven't got the energy to do it. Um, and energy actually is now how I basically like with my to do list. I I put everything. I I put each item in my to do list into what's an en called an energy state. Mm -hmm. So I put it into, uh, it might be like simple thing, like changing the cat's litter tray might be in a brain dead state. So it's a task I can complete when I actually have no energy whatsoever and no motivation to do anything. Mm. Um, and then there might be like a full steam or a medium steam, um, or a learning energy state where I'm in that particular mood Yeah, yeah. to do something. Um, and that, that works really well for me, but you know, I think it comes back to this whole thing that it's not time, it's energy. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of um, modal working and states and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. More interestingly, how to generate those kind of modes and feelings within yourself. Oh, yeah, that's a massive topic, isn't it? Yeah. Using drugs or electricity. You mind, know, mind, mind, mindfulness, Stephen, not drugs. Yeah, okay. Meditation. <laughs> Meditation, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's probably enough for one. So, so you're going to, you're putting the phrase, I don't have enough time, in the context of people who, have an idea, but really what they're saying is, I'm probably not going to do this. Yeah. I think I'm going to let that one through because that that gets on my nerves too. Um, because for the simple reason that if you really wanted to do something, you would find time. And actually, a lot of this stuff doesn't take very long. So if you bought a book on coding, great first step. Uh, or if you downloaded a video series, a lot of the videos don't last longer than five to seven minutes. You know, sort of the lynda.com series, you know, most of the videos are around five to seven minutes. Yeah, and you can and, do it You can do it over time. Like, yeah. you can do, like, 20 minutes a day. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't have 10 minutes a day to study something that they really want yeah. to do? And believe me, you do 20 minutes a day of learning and coding, you'll be a good coder within six months, easily. Absolutely. So it's not, you know, there's always time. There's always time to read. There's always time, as long as it's something you want to do and you're interested in it. 
and you have the energy. Okay, so that one goes into room 101. Yes. Don't think you're going to get an easy time, though, just to get my <laughs> one through. <laughs> oh, okay, so my first one, okay, but all of mine are fairly, well, actually, two of mine are fairly controversial. Um, but that's just how we're going to do it. So the, my first one is going to be the medical journals and the peer review system. Wow. That's like a whole separate podcast in itself. It is. It is. But I feel they've got to go into room 101. Okay. Okay. Tell me. Go. So don't don't make it too long. Don't do Stephen Waffle. I know. I know. You've got to. I think I should break it up and you can ask me. Stop me and ask me questions. So basically the, the... the way that we communicate science, um, medical advances, is kind of an outdated model. So the journals basically grew up 300 years ago when it was necessary to communicate through sending things to people's house, written on paper, and that's no longer a great model since we have the internet. And so I asked myself, what kind of value do journals bring to the world of science? And probably the biggest thing that they bring is with it, the the embedded peer review system. Um, And they also bring a load of other things like metrics. So citations, they bring impact factors and all these kind of other embedded things that I think are just completely outdated and a bit of a waste of time. Um, So the peer review system, I agree, is absolutely necessary to make scientific advances. But in its current format, I don't think it's adequate. Okay. So the next obvious question is, what should replace it? Well, that's difficult. So the current peer review system basically is uh, two or three or maybe more of your of, of the peers uh, review a paper that's submitted to a journal. And the journal is the one who decides whether that piece of research gets published or not. And as we know, there's lots of research bias. There's lots of negative papers that don't end up getting published. And there's a tremendous bias towards publishing positive results. And the peer review system, I think, fails science because those peer reviewers are never accountable for the work that they do. So, for example, as a researcher, you only really get credit for getting things published and getting things cited. And yep. that's how you, that's the measure of success when you're in academia. But there's lots of other work that you do that doesn't get recognised. So bringing up PhD students, mentoring them, uh, giving lectures, um, and critiquing as a peer reviewer some other person's research. And it's very easy as a peer reviewer if you don't have time. There's all sorts of stories about peer reviewers handing their papers off to, to their PhD students, which is obviously totally wrong. Um, but you don't really get credited for doing good work as a peer reviewer and actually taking your job very seriously. So the incentive, therefore, is to not do a particularly good job. And if you are being very, very vigorous, um, that's not necessarily rewarded, which I think is probably the first aspect of, of why I think peer review is a little outdated, because no one gets rewarded for it. The other thing is that it takes a tremendously long time for something you know, to get submitted to a journal, to go through the peer review process and then get into the outside world. And I think that harms people because you'd see that a typical sort of journal turnaround would be something like four to six months from submission. But when you're dealing, as we did deal with the swine flu virus and the effect of Ostamavir on on that virus, those kind of advances took a tremendously long time to get into the public domain when all we really needed to know is, does this drug work? Yeah. And uh, I think the peer review system fails science in that sense. The other thing is that they're never accountable for mistakes they make, these peer reviewers. So no one knows who they are. Was Wakefield's peer review people ever held to account? 
Exactly, yeah. So who were the peer reviewers that reviewed Andrew Wakefield's um, research for The Lancet? And The Lancet wasn't held responsible for that. Uh, and the peer reviewers weren't held responsible. Uh, it was, you know, Andrew Wakefield. Yeah. And I just think that, 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 that that's wholly inadequate. And there's this model of science now where, you know, you, you, you're, you can, I mean, you can essentially publish any research paper you want for free just popping it up on the internet. There's no need for us to waste lots of taxpayers' money paying for open access. We're just basically lining the pockets of the uh, of the, the scholarly publishing system. And I don't see why they should profit off of, uh, you know, research organisations, take money away from them, take money away from the taxpayer for doing essentially a job that can be done with a WordPress blog. Yeah. And I think peer review should be open. <clears throat> I think that if people were properly rewarded in the scientific community for doing peer review, I think you would get a lot of people doing peer review because they are rewarded for it on the basis of scientific merit. So at the moment, if you stuck a research paper up on your blog, no one would go and review it. Um, And certainly the experts, and you might get a really interested expert in the field who felt it was his duty to review it, um, uh, in which case that's great. But there's no incentive for anyone to go and review that paper. Um, there's actually a system in um, run out of Cornell called the Archives, which is very big in the sort of sci- uh, the uh, physics and mathematics world. So basically, journals have copyright to uh, the final draft that they produce, but they don't have, and all the intermediate reviews that they have had input on, but they don't have any copyright to your original submission. So what these guys are doing is they're sticking their original submission to journals up on the archives, and people in the archives are doing peer review on their own, in an open, transparent fashion. And actually the results that they get and the papers that are produced after that are often much better and the comments are much better quality because you can get all sorts of people. It's much more powerful to get 50 people's view on a paper than just two selected by whichever journal they're friendly with. Yeah, and a discussion surrounding that as well. You know, just imagine imagine that the paper is a blog and then the comments underneath, people can talk about it. Absolutely, and there's some great comment engines that exist now that would allow this kind of system to to be in place. I think it needs to be managed, and I understand journals have a a sort of... I think they should have a role in that, Um, but I I don't see why they need to be paid so much. I mean, just publishing in an open uh, fashion, paying a journal for that, can often cost, you know, 1,500 quid, sometimes more, you know, several thousands of pounds to publish a paper and it goes up on the web and it appears in a sort of paper copy. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's just a waste of taxpayers' money. And like the system is flawed. I know people, you know, who are training, who are in a group of trainees or whatever, and basically they rotate their um, authorships. So, you know, it'll be like, oh, if you put me as third author author on on this paper you've done, you know, I'll put you on you know, I'll put you on my paper, Yeah. you know, so basically one paper can generate, you know, 10, you know, attributions. Yeah. Um, and that is just, that is just crazy. And that, that largely stems from the fact that the, the measure of success is how many publications you have and how many citations you have. So obviously people are going to game the system. But then how do we measure success? Like <clears throat> the other, the other option is some sort of very detailed e-portfolio. And this is a, this is a, this is a, a problem that is worldwide. It's like, how do you turn something which is fundamentally continuous, a continuous variable such as, is someone good at what they do, uh, which ca- into discrete individual measurements 
that allow you to actually quantify that. Yeah. Um, and as soon as you do that quantification, as soon as you make someone a, a discrete variable, then people will find a way to abuse it. That's yeah, that's right. Um, that's a tremendously difficult problem, and I don't, I don't think I have an answer to that. I don't think there's any one person that really has an answer to that. But this is something that needs to be developed and needs attention. Um, my own personal view is that people should gain recognition for lots of different things, and the citation's a really poor metric as your, your uh, of your contribution to the scientific world. You know, Andrew Wakefield probably got lots and lots of citations for his oh. paper. Um, it's been very influential to science, but it doesn't reflect how good he is as a scientist clearly and I think there's there's got to be other ways to to measure your success as an academic and in in part it should be based on you know the the sort of research output that you've got but it should also contain quality really as well and maybe that should be judged by your peers maybe it shouldn't I I, I'm not really sure yeah I mean maybe some sort of measurement surrounding the amount of discussion yeah I mean, that's, that's, that's for me, that's the most interesting thing is, is getting scientists together discussing something rather than someone just stating what it is. What's um, interesting, though, is that, you know, amongst people, okay, so just sort of perceptions that we make as humans about people, everyone knows who's the big man, right? Everyone knows who will know. So you've got a group of people together, there's a problem in the group, and everyone knows who's the person to go to and who has expertise on what, who, who you know, and everyone kind of has made a ranking of everybody else's position and value within the group uh, already, but there just, there isn't a metric that you can use to measure that. So this is something that we're already doing on a, on a sort of daily basis by judging people's contributions and effort within a group, but we're not really developing ways of measuring that and i think that's that's the kind of next conversation that we need to have yeah okay maybe it should be efficiency so you know what's your (laughs) what's your research output and contribution per you know us dollar spent on you yeah that could be interesting way of doing it you gonna let it through i'm gonna let it through yeah i don't like peer review i've only been through peer review once but i hated it yeah and it was so like it was so political like yeah. it was just completely, you know, you express an opinion which one of the other reviewers is right doing something on and they disagree and it, it's like got nothing to do with what you did. It's just political. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Okay, we'll let it through. Yes. Yes. Go on then. Okay, so my next one is, he says, bringing up his notes. Um, okay, this is a quickie, okay, uh, which is very close to our, our heart. I think anybody who has an inbox with more than 10 items in it should be in room 101. <laughs> the actual person? Yeah, the whole person. Put yeah. them in. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I don't... I mean, maybe it's just because I am a sort of efficiency stroke procrastination nutcase. But how does anyone... How can anybody live their life with an inbox with an, and, and an inbox is both, a, you know, obviously the digital thing, but also it kind of is more than that. It, it's kind of the landing place for your life. And, and it, it's, it's a bad thing that email has become that, but it is essentially that in the way that we communicate nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, how can you keep all that stuff sitting in that place and be sane? If you have all that stuff going on there, then every time you open your email client, which is pretty much the gateway to most people's working lives. Yeah. How, like, surely it causes, like, despair. 
because you 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 have to you're instantly you're reminded of all the things you haven't done, all the things you need to do, all the things you might need to do, all the known knowns, all the known unknowns, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're confronted with you know a thousand emails sitting in your inbox, or in the case of NHS Mail, when you actually can't send an email because you've got too many emails already, um, and you run out of space. Um, and for me, people who don't take the time to actually go through that email stuff, they can't be working well. So we should can them. And stick them in the room. Take them in the room. Okay. Uh, I think I know what you're getting at, and I kind of agree with your premise, but in... If I were to practice inbox zero in the way that I want to practice it, I wouldn't check my emails constantly, right? I wouldn't have the email application open. Oh, yeah, sure. And I would check it twice a day. And sometimes yeah. I do that and sometimes I don't. So when I check it at four o'clock, there might be 20, 30 emails in there. Does that mean I go to room 101? Because there's 30 no, emails no, in no. It's, it's No, no, no. Sorry, the, 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 I'm being too harsh. It's like, it's a, maybe 10 was a bit of a stupid figure. Like... I'm thinking of the people who have morbid obesity of their inbox. Okay. So, so let's say something like more than uh, an inbox with more than 50, f- 50 emails in for yeah. more than three days running. Yeah. Okay. It's like the chronic liver disease of email. I, w- I, w- I would love to can that person. Because I just, I just can't, I, I cannot understand how that person can be functioning okay i've got another one for you so what about not the person you're talking about unread emails right um yeah i i guess okay so what what i think is also more damaging right so the temptation is when you've got uh, a smartphone is to check emails you know quite frequently well constantly Uh, if you've got beeping yeah constantly if you if you have not turned off notifications basically whenever you get an email ding 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 yeah congratulations someone sent you an email um someone just gave you a little bit of endorphin boots.com or something yeah um or in my case jimmy chu i I bought some shoes for my wife once they keep sending me emails really annoying i need to answer and you can't subscribe they're one of those they're so posh there's no unsubscribe (laughs) why would they want it too posh for unsubscribe so um, the temptation is, right, so you pick up your smartphone, ding, 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 okay, and you check your email, okay, it's nothing I need to deal with now, so you put your phone down, back in the pocket. So that email's not unread. I've processed it once, but then it stays in my inbox for the next five days. Uh, yeah, but you have, to, you have to process that every time you open your inbox. Exactly. So, so as, I, you sc- as you scroll down, you have to go, oh, no, I've already thought about that, but then you will think about it again. That yeah. Is not, yeah. It's a waste of time, isn't it? Waste of time, and more importantly, as I said earlier, energy energy so can i extend your room 101 submission to to people who have both read and unread emails more than 50 in their inbox so i'm gonna say emails that have not had a decision made about them about what they contain and what needs to happen with that email or the information contained within yeah so more than 50 of those bad boys for more than three days only so emails without decisions Yes. Okay. You'd be happy with that? I'm I'm happy with that classification. Okay, let's put them in. Done. They're Done. in. They're out of here. <laughs> and by the way, if you if you are one of those people in those situations, there are two approaches. Um one is to declare email bankruptcy. Because let's face it, if you've got that many emails, then you're never probably gonna go through them. So just just literally don't no need to delete them, but just shove them in an archive folder and start again. If someone really wants to get hold of you about something important, they'll email you again. 
Um, so that's one way. The other way is to use the do, defer, delegate, um, destroy mentality for each email. So if it takes less than two minutes, you deal with it right then and there. Um, if it takes longer than two minutes and you're going to need to do it in the past, you defer it, um, usually by putting it somewhere else, like a defer folder or something, which you then, you know, empty on a regular basis. You delegate it to someone else. Not always possible, but people forget that that is an option. Give it um, a go. Yeah. Or just like kill it instantly. Like some emails I'll get from people that clearly ask for a response. Like they clearly demonstrate a response a need for a response. But, you know, I might, for whatever reason, mainly, and the most common reason is that the response, I know I'm going to write a response that is very aggressive. <laughs> uh, and sometimes if that's the case, I just delete it. Okay. Um, and th I'm doing this actually more and more now with email. Like, if you email me, you're not necessarily going to get a response. How many of my emails do you delete? I think I usually respond to your emails, but that's because your emails are blissfully short. So I've been listening to this podcast. You know um, CPD Gray? Yeah. Uh, who does, who has a sort of uh, eponymous, I think, uh, YouTube channel where he explains fascinating subjects. Uh, he's partnered with a guy called Brady who works on Numberphile and a number of other YouTube channels, which I like. And they've released a podcast called Hello Internet. Nice. I don't know if you heard it. It's very good. And they recently did an episode about email. And um, CPG Gray was talking about how uh, it was called. It's called Hello Internet Number Six. Delete flag. Delete reply. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he 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 gets obviously uh, you know being a, a top YouTube channel host, he gets a phenomenal amount of email. And he was talking about how he manages uh, his inbox. And basically, if anyone writes him a sort of essay type email. He'll read the first line of the first paragraph, the first line of the second paragraph. And if they haven't got to the point by then, he'll delete it. <laughs> so if he can't work out what it is that that person wants, it goes away. Yeah. It's really, it's really hard to <clears throat> not reply to an email. If someone's, you know, could you feel someone's taken the time to write you a note? But actually, and I think about this more and more when I send people email. Like when you send someone an email, you create a psychological burden on that person. Like yeah. you sap some of their energy away from them. Yeah. Um, and you know, sometimes it's just better to not send an email or sometimes actually like you're doing them a favor by just not replying to it. That might seem weird, but you know, your reply means that they have to then do more work. And then when, when you reply, you can often go backwards and forwards, you know? So if you get this sort of essay long email and then you, you know, you take the time to read it and, uh, make a considered reply and then it goes back and then another essay comes in, you know, it's just... Yeah, so, that's not a that's not a good place to be in when you're exchanging essays with someone and it's like expected. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I made it in. Jolly good. Jolly good. Okay, so this one I'm gonna have to be really careful careful of. Um my GMC license is at risk. But I'm gonna propose that the patient revolution in the in its fullest capacity <laughs> Go into room 101. I don't believe you're going here. <laughs> okay, explain now. Okay, right. Before I call the GMC. 
So lots of things have changed in medicine. Okay, uh, our, our relationship with patients used to be very clear. So you know there was a doctor-patient relationship. The doctor was very much in charge, and the patients were often grateful to receive the doctor's advice. Okay, and that's an outdated model. That's not the way it should be, and we should be striving for a more equal patient-doctor partnership. That's what I do agree on. But what gets to me is these kind of patient know best kind of um, uh, ideas. And uh, I think patients should be empowered with their health. I think that chronic diseases are going up and patients can do a lot for themselves. And as doctors, we should take heed of that and work with patients, try and work out what's best for them. But we've always been caring individuals, you know, not all of us, but, you know, as a profession, we've been a very caring profession and we do want to work with patients and and help them get better. And that's why we're here. That's why we've all been vetted by the GMC uh, and our medical schools to, to perform those duties. And what gets to me with the patient revolution is that now medical information is accessible with anyone with an internet connection. Um, And I am annoyed constantly by both social media and political forces that detract away from the profession and give the impression that, um, that patients know best, when actually I think that statement is wrong. So if I could put any one particular phrase from that into Room 101, it's patients know best. Patients know what they would like, or maybe they don't know what they would like because no one has told them and taken the time to explain the best available evidence to them. So I don't agree that patients know best. I think that the the media is doing a really damaging job um, by, you know, scaremongering and jumping on every sort of mishap story and whipping up this sort of media and political frenzy that really damages the profession and actually ultimately reflects really badly on our ability to care for patients. A classic example is the four-hour target in A&E. Whilst I agree that everyone should be seen in a reasonable time, triage is very important. And what you see now is these sort of medical and surgical assessment units popping up everywhere that just circumvent that target. Mm. And now A&E is a very stressful and very difficult place where not much is done for the patient. I mean, there's lots that have done that's great for the very sickest of patients. But the patients that come in that are sick, they need to come into hospital and they can't be discharged. Actually, I think it does a disservice to them. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, as you were speaking there, as I mean, our, our listeners may wish to check. I was really reminded, I'm reading a book at the moment by a a guy called Alain de Botton. He's a... Mm. Um, he's a sort of what would be termed a therapeutic philosopher. So he looks at current issues in our modern lives and tries to take the work of philosophers and his own thoughts and try to provide ways to make us feel better through philosophy. Um, And he's just brought out this book called The News, A User's Manual. Okay. Um, And it basically looks at how we as we are completely you know obsessed with the news yeah and and the damage that it potentially does to us this obsession with constantly needing to know and the way that the news agencies deliver content and and how actually the way that they deliver content tends to follow certain archetypes and things like that the the, the same stories come up again and again and again they just follow these archetypes which they figured out that we like to read about yeah um 
And it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, he's written other great stuff, like the, his other books I recommend, uh, one called Status Anxiety, which is like about how to deal with being worried about what people think of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another one called The Consolations of Philosophy, where he like takes a major philosopher's work and uses it to make you feel better about your day-to-day life with a particular problem. Um, but yeah, the news, and I was, I, I, as you were speaking, it just, it just, you know, obviously I'm reading the book at the moment, so obviously I'm thinking about it. But yeah, I mean, I really can understand how, you know, the media has massively driven this, um, mainly, mainly with, you know, the whole thing that doctors are evil, money-grabbing people um, who, you know, are just in it for themselves and they don't really care. And if you're going to look after yourself as a patient, you need to basically do everything for yourself. And yeah. basically the doctor is someone to break through to get what you need, not someone who actually gives a damn especially the, um, the the role of the gp i think has been massively yeah. massively damaged yeah. um no i agree I, with you and look of course there are going to be there are always in life going to be in any profession people who are good at it and bad at it i mean 50 you know below you know more than well fifth what's the best way to put this 50 percent of doctors are below average <laughs> very true very true i mean they have to be so you know that, by that's, definition by definition. Um, so, you know, I think it's really difficult. But the wrong approach to this is to just completely discount the role of the medical profession and say the patient knows everything. And I agree, yes, the patient is, an, uh, in a way, an expert in what they're feeling about whatever medical condition they may or may not have. Yeah. Um, I, I 100% agree with that. But that doesn't mean that they are an expert in what they need. Um, and this goes back, you know, to to old ancient cultures of, you know, what is the, what is the doctor? What is the, the healer? It's a healer. You know, it's somebody who doesn't just provide, you know, the scientific facts and the evidence-based um, response to, to your situation. Um, there's somebody who, you know, is able to make you feel better about the fact that you are eventually going to die. Like Paracelsus. Yeah. And that's what religion is basically as well. I mean, we don't want to get into that too much, but, um, or cause fatwas to be taken out on, 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 on either of us. But, you know, the, 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 these things are fundamentally designed to make life, which ultimately, I'm not going to say it's all suffering because I'm going to get into Buddhism, but, you know, it's like, it, it, we're all going to die. And, um, you know, these things, you know, there has to be some level of, you know, that you have to look up to somebody in moments of crisis. Yeah, no. and, and whilst I accept that there are countless examples where doctors get it wrong, um, but I just see so many doctors nowadays working defensively uh, for the fear that they will be uh, come down upon by certain bodies or maybe legally uh, for doing a particular test. Now, medicine is very complex and there are lots of judgments that doctors make that cannot be proven. So they cannot, they're not on the basis of tests. They're on the basis of uh, opinion and expertise, and these judgments are taken with all the best care in the world, looking out for the patient. And I think they are very difficult decisions to make. And I see that those kind of value judgments and those decisions and those judgments make in the patient's best interest, in conjunction with them, no less, 
are actually becoming less common and people are doing unnecessary investigations and tests for the fear that they may be, uh, you know, to, to provide more evidence for a decision they know is already right. Um, and a really yeah. classic example of where the media can be damaging is this, uh, you know, recent abolishment and uh, of the Liverpool Care Pathway. Oh, you know, yeah. A pathway that yeah. was primarily designed to look after patients at the end of life and that I've seen work fantastically well in a number of cases. I'm not saying it wasn't perfect. I'm not saying it didn't need to be supplanted with something maybe a little bit better, a little bit clear and something can be less abused perhaps. But now there's nothing and a lot of hospitals got rid of it overnight. And I, I, I'm fairly sure, and I've seen it myself, I'm, I'm fairly sure that lots and lots of people have had horrible deaths and have suffered as a result of what was essentially a media scare. Yeah, Which absolutely. is horrible. And another, you know, very interesting, if you, ever, like, if you ever want to see the darkest side of humanity, do you know the place that you look? Uh, Parliament? No, close. So you go onto a news website and you read the article and then you go to the comments. Right. And it's the same on YouTube. Yeah. If you ever want to look into the heart of darkness, yeah, yeah. go onto YouTube and read the comments. Yeah, like that's how, what we're like, aren't we? That's yeah. human be- that's, we are human beings. They're all human beings. That's what we're like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's and, the anonymous, you know, I can say what I like because I'm anonymous. Yeah. And, you know, I had that happen to me. I published a podcast through Podmedics on the Liverpool care pathway fairly, you know, pretty much around the controversy at the time it came out. Cause I thought it was important that people know about it. The medical students particularly know about what the Liverpool pathway was or, or is, and then subsequently was. Um, and I got, you know, satanically commented on, on YouTube. Um, nice. and you know, that you just see how, you know, how dark, like the, 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 the influence of, of, of that media sort of, thing you know in that report that was done actually was and i've seen you know i've seen you know i saw people in the time when i was practicing medical clinical medicine like the liverpool carefoy was like on a shrine yeah like how quickly it fell yeah yeah yeah. and it can't be because it was all so bad unless we're all we were all brainwashed i don't know yeah but yeah i think that's a very good example so i'd like to probably point people in the direction of a document um it's freely available on the internet from the Royal College of Physicians website and it's uh, the report of the working party in 2005 and it's called Doctors in Society and uh, I think uh, Dame Carol Black who was then president of the Royal College of Physicians at the time headed it up and I think it's a fantastic document for outlining all of these different forces in medicine that are, are changing the profession. And a lot of them, you know, uh, you know, a lot of them are very positive that people have access to information. And uh, it talks about medical professionalism and how we should conduct ourselves as a profession. And it makes lots of positive comments. You know, we've never had a, a better tools to do the job of medicine well. But there are lots of, you know, forces in med- uh, around medicine that are actually making our job extremely difficult. And I think if you take the attitude that patients know best, and if you think about what patients are informed by, it's usually a lot of hearsay, a lot of media comment and government policy. 
And actually, I don't think that those people, when they write those stories or when they make policy, are actually really thinking about the individual patient or even or even society as a whole. Um, I think they're they're usually looking out for their own interests, getting a new story read, or or perhaps you know making it to the next election or reacting to to some kind of story in the media. And the thing that annoys me most is when government policy is changed by a media scare with very very little consultation from the medical profession. And I think we could do a lot to help ourselves by standing up for ourselves. But I just I just think that this patient revolution can be taken far far too far. And I think that's ultimately going to damage the care for patients, quite ironically. Yeah. I'm in. Okay. okay. Actually, no, you're not in. <gasps> right. You're, 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 no, 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 no. You're, you're in in spirit. But okay. This is a political statement. We can't put you in because we can't put you in. We can't put it in because it's unacceptable. You, you've been reading too many philosophy books. I don't even understand what you just said. <laughs> The fact that we're not, I'm not putting you, putting that in room 101. Right. Is a statement in itself. A politically driven statement? Just, just. Having just had the discussion we've had, the fact it's not making it in room 101. Yeah. I think speaks for actually what the true feeling is about it, but the reality is. Okay. Discuss. I still don't think I understand. Okay. I'm sh- well, someone will enlighten us in the comments. <laughs> or, 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 or take us to the heart of darkness, one or the other. Absolutely. Right, we've got okay, one each left. On. I can't let all of them in. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I'm going to try and not be biased now. Well, you're going to have to not let my last one in, because I, anyway. No, no, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep an open mind. Okay. I'm not going to let my feelings... Uh, ch- that's another really interesting... No, no, another podcast. No, don't go there, Stephen. Mm. Okay, so what's my final one? Well, my final one is another pretty easy one. Um, And this is because basically my job now, I have two jobs, basically. My one job is to develop products within my company that help people, um, help doctors and stuff, internal stuff like prodmedics.com and the induction app and stuff like that. Um, But another part of my work is... Isn't that like a medical wiki kind of thing? A medical what? Like a wiki, the induction app. I guess, I guess it kind of is actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good thought. Good thought. And your second job is looking after the dog, right? And the cats. Well, yeah, that actually, that's God. I've got so many jobs. That's my third job. Uh, my second job is building software for other people, clients. Okay. Um, and so they come along and sometimes these clients are startups, healthcare. I only do healthcare IT stuff. Um, actually that's not true. I did a bridal website recently. Um, but that, yeah. So a deep passion of yours, a deep passion of mine. Yeah. The most I've ever been involved in the wedding industry. Um, so yeah, you've disturbed my train of thought now. So yeah, so clients come along startups or more and more. I work with the NHS. Um, and they have this like idea of a piece of software that is going to make what, you know, make learning better or make patient care better or mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and they come along and they come to me and they go like, oh, this amazing idea, you know, this amazing idea. And I get a two page document on this idea. And then they say, how much is it going to cost? And I have to give them, they want a fixed fee quote. So of how much is going to cost. 
and then I have to stick to that fixed fee, fixed fee quote. Mm-hmm. Without, so, without knowing the scope of the project? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So fixed fee quotes and fixed fee clients in general are my last room 101 thing for me. Because it is impossible to design a good piece of software that fits the needs of the people using it from two pages worth of documentation. Like a lot of people come to me and they think your role is purely technical. I have all the ideas. I've written them down on these two pages of, of this Word document that I've sent you. And you just simply have to turn that into like this website. Yeah. And that should cost like a fixed amount. Like when I call the plumber out and he comes and I have got my toilet unblocked, I pay 60 quid. And you pay 60 that's... quid really for a call out? Yeah, probably. Have you ever called a plumber? I have actually, yeah. I think I paid more than 60 quid actually. Yeah. Anyway, but that was fixed pretty much. The problem I have with that is that one, one is, 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 is scope creep. So inevitably, you know, because the person who wrote that specification has no idea about the technology, they don't know everything to put in the specification in order to make it exact enough for it to be a technical exercise. Mm-hmm. That is our job. Like part of what mm. I do in the company is to sit down with people with these specifications and to evolve the specification to create a better product. Um, and invariably, that means, as it should do, that you know, obviously, I need to be paid for my time, and that they the the scope of the project may become larger, and more people might need to be involved, and the complexity might increase, etc., etc., etc. But people just are so fixed on this fixed fixed fee, um, this fixed fee thing, which is just not not possible. It puts all of the advantage with the client, uh, and it gives us, as the people doing the work, absolutely no scope to do anything outside of that, and forces us ultimately to cut corners and not make good products. Okay, so how should they? go about getting a product built for them what is, what is the alternative to, to making a budget uh you know say you're given an amount of money for a particular project by another manager a bit higher up and you go yeah. to the company and say well this is our budget you know this is what we have to stick to yeah but of course they will never do that because they never come and say this is our budget because they're terrified that you'll just then immediately base your price upon their budget okay um so they never tell you what the budget is so in order to let this through yeah given that you didn't let my last one through, <laughs> um how how should they conduct themselves how can they get a product built in uh, a way that would please their developer okay so the alternative is that you pay for the actual you know the actual time involved um in in building that product but there's a it's a hybrid because essentially what you need to do it's it's actually just a it's a problem of project management actually not a problem of the fact that, that it's fixed fee yeah although that is the result okay you need to sit down with the developers and things like that and actually create a proper document a proper yeah. specification that really does describe what the product does with all of the things that are necessary for the technical side to be achieved Mm -hmm. now the issue is is often that process takes a lot of time 
um, from both sides, actually. A lot of development time uh, from the developer side, a lot of um, time from the client side as well. But surely that's better um, than getting paying for a, you know, a, a fixed price where a product doesn't really do what you want. Yeah, exactly. And the other, the other real issue is that, and this particularly unfortunately comes up when working with large organizations, and I'm sure you can imagine the one I have in mind, um, is that often projects will just stall in the middle. So the project will be ongoing and then there'll be some problem. Maybe it's integration into an existing system or something like that. And the product, the, the project just basically just stops. Yeah. Everything goes on hold. But you're still expected to kind of be like in communication, responding to emails, responding to letters, all this kind of stuff in that meantime. And even going, going, to, going to meetings. And at this point, it's probably all unpaid, right? Yeah, completely. So, you know, suddenly they stall the project midway through. You're on a fixed fee, but you have to attend 40 meetings before you can unstick the project and it actually moves any further. Right. And of course, that's all still fixed fee. Yeah. Um, so actually, I would say, you know, not being like fixed fee projects in large organizations are a sure way to build a failing uh, a product that doesn't work, essentially. Um, because you need to have that sort of you need to have that understanding that everything is is, is paid for because it actually motivates you to get off your ass and do something like fixed fee things create stagnation. Um, well, if it's, if you know that your developers are being paid per hour, you know, if I spend 10 minutes drafting a response to one of your long emails about some issue, then that's going to get charged for, yep. you know, and that actually creates a clarity within the relationship. So have you ever um, used, um, uh, agile methods, you know, so, so, uh, I mean, I may have got this wrong, but, I guess the way that agile would probably work between a sort of client and uh, uh, you know and uh, and a developer firm is that uh, you would have, as you say, a meeting about what the product is exactly supposed to do. You would together produce uh, a, a, a specification and the scope of the project, and then you would basically assign points uh, to you know arbitrary values of points to you know this is four points worth of work, and yeah. I guess you could give it time or yeah. whatever. And then over successive kind of sprints during the adult methodology, you work out what your team's velocity is. So our team can work on this project uh, at a rate of four points per week. And, you know, we've estimated that you've got 60 points. So therefore, we estimate based on our current velocity, we should be finished by this kind of time and you would pay this much per point, that kind of thing. Have yeah, you that, tried that? that works really well with startups. And someone who gets it, I guess. Yeah, and people who are very involved with the product. Unfortunately, it doesn't work in organizations. Um, and organizations, are the, ironically, are the, the ones who are least likely to agree to a consultancy arrangement. Yeah. Because historically, you know, a lot of, a lot of you know, uh, consultancy arrangements led to a lot of money being wasted. Or well, not wasted, but just, you know, if you've got very complex management structures, very poor channels of communication, lots of stagnation and people who don't care, then that can use up a lot of consultancy time and not go anywhere. Yeah, people so, are not willing to find out the challenges of the project. And yeah, so it's a lot safer for organizations who know that they have this communication, internal communication <coughs> problem with people not taking, you know, not really taking ownership over projects to go with fixed fee. A lot safer. Um, because they know they're gonna, they you know they know that they can basically use up as much development time as they want essentially, um, with their own miscommunication and own internal pro problems. 
um, and they won't get charged any extra for it. Just out of interest, so if you were to quote uh, an organisation a fixed fee price, yeah. um, say you were still in the business of doing that, you're probably not anymore, but say you were to quote an organisation a fixed fee price for a piece of work, yeah. would you, I mean, clearly you'd probably tend to overestimate the kind of cost to the organisation. And then do you find people would be probably better to go with a consultancy-based proper specification kind of model of payment than a fixed fee because they may end up paying less? Or do things tend they to might, cost about They might the actually. I mean, if I'm asked, sometimes I am asked for fixed fee quotes. Yeah. And the way I calculate it is, I mean, I... So my business works on the idea of weeks. We don't quote, we don't really do hours. Like we just assign a person per week for a certain amount, mm-hmm. um, pretty much. And that can get subdivided in time, but we tend not to. We tend to like that. I, I like that figure of a week. Yeah. Um, and so I will try and basically figure out how many weeks it's going to take. And then I will add 25, anywhere between, tw- depending on what my assessment of the situation is, I could add any, anywhere between 25 and 50% onto that figure. Wow. And do you, do you, do you get it done sooner? Uh, yeah, so sometimes they end up paying too much. Okay, based on a fixed fee quote. Yeah. Mm. And also it's not clear. It's not clear the, how the work's being done. It's not accounted for properly. In, in a consultancy arrangement, you account for everything. Yeah. You know, and, and that creates a much, actually a much, a much more meaningful relationship with your client. Yeah. Because they really do understand that how long things take. And also it's um, about expectations as well, isn't it? So yeah. they, if you create the specific specification together, rather than just paying, you know, used to, the people are used to going on, buying a piece of software from the shelf, going and installing yeah. it there, it works. But if you're involved in the creation of that software, you've got a better idea about what you're going to get in the end. If you're involved in the specification, if you're involved in multiple steps along the process um, yeah. and you're in constant dialogue with your developer. And this is actually, this is a massive problem in large organizations because of the concept of procurement, which still largely works off fixed fee quotes. Yeah. Like, we've got this project, we put it out to tender and procure it, and you guys are all invited to submit your fixed fee quotes for doing this project. Yeah, and the person I mean, with the lowest quote usually wins. Isn't yeah. Isn't that the case? Yeah. And this is a hopeless way to get software built. Yeah, and actually it's probably the guy who's, who's estimated it properly, taking into account all of the challenges that you may face that actually probably understands the project better and you'll get a better product from. Exactly. So it's a very interesting, I mean, and there's, there's been lots of debates, you know, in consulting sort of market, IT consulting about, about this. Um, but I think it, it generally, you know, fixed fee quotes, I think people should start to understand that when you're building a product, like you can't put a, f- you, a software product, you can't just put a price on it. It's not just off the shelf. Yeah. Um, you can estimate but you have to understand that that estimation could be wildly wrong. It's an estimate. Yeah. Okay, I think I'm going to let that one in. Oh, no. That sounds good. You like that? Yeah, so you are successful. I'm three for three. Three for three. I'm one for two. Maybe I'll have to revise your your, your scoring. (laughs) But again, mine was about managing expectations. You know, the public's expectation about what's possible in medicine. And uh, I think it's the doctor's job to, to, to inform patients about what is possible, what isn't. Okay. Anyway, anyway um, okay, I, you persuaded me. We'll let it in. No, no, no. It's fine. We can. Um, okay. Give me your last one. Okay. So my last one uh, that we've spoken about before, and uh, I am going to put uh, propose that Internet Explorer goes into room one hundred and one. Okay. Done. End of podcast. <laughs> 
And the reason I think it should go into one-on-one, firstly, for two reasons. One is because I hate it. It uh, doesn't conform to any of the standards that the other browsers do. They seem to try and do everything on their own. It's getting better. It's not getting better fast enough. Um, But secondly, uh, it... I think it's indicative of a, a sort of more worrying and underlying problem in NHS IT. So this sort of reliance on Microsoft and uh, their operating system and Internet Explorer, I see that as a very big problem in NHS IT. And one reason I've heard quoted by an IT manager as to why we couldn't add a button to a piece of software that they actually had control over was that, uh, or why we couldn't use another browser in a hospital as well, so he gave the same argument for both, is that this piece of software has been tested with Internet Explorer version 6, and (laughs) therefore upgrading to Internet Explorer version 7 on our machines would be dangerous because we haven't tested it with Internet Explorer 7. Okay, so this... This is a very, very serious problem. Yeah. It is not possible for us, on the one hand, to moan about the way IT isn't moving forward to be, you know, to best practice within healthcare. And then on the other hand, to say, oh, yeah, but, you know, you're going to have to make that piece of software compatible with Internet Explorer 6. Yeah. Um, and, of course, this is, all, this is all rubbish. Like, just test it then. Yeah. Like, that's the answer. Just, just test it. And, and if Wikipedia- it doesn't work... Yeah. fix it and on wikipedia there isn't even there isn't even an actual you know on the the main internet explorer wikipedia page there isn't even a section dedicated to internet explorer 6 you know uh, it starts with history and then 1.1 early versions 1.2 windows internet explorer 8 yeah. you know there isn't even a wikipedia entry you know and do you know do you know what the really shocking thing about all this is is that it's all double standard so Internet Explorer 6 and, you know, Internet Explorer 6, to be fair, is dying in hospitals. Like, a lot of them have gone to 7. Um, but you do still see it. But it's totally unsupported and it's totally insecure. Yeah, the security problems are such a big problem with Internet so, Explorer 6. Like, about six years ago, the Department of Health actually issued, because there was some case of some guy in China who managed to hack into some hospital and get healthcare information. Mm. Um, the, the Department of Health issued guidance saying you must not use Index Pro 6. Everybody has to upgrade. But, of course, the same things that your guy said to you came out of the like, oh, we can't because the software isn't tested on Internet Explorer 7. Mm. Um, do you know, I've got a very easy solution to this. Just keep that software on Internet Explorer 6 and install another browser. Yeah. Like, it's possible. To, I, I know that this might, this might be odd to some people who work in NHS IT, but it is possible to have more than one browser installed on a computer. Um, and I mean, if you're you that know, concerned about it, that's one possible solution, isn't it? Yeah, and you can even restrict it. So, like, I've worked in hospitals where I've basically my my policy is when when I get that inevitable discussion with the people, they're like, "Oh yeah, we, we thank you for your fix fee quote," um, <laughs> but but we really need just to make sure this is going to work in Internet Explorer six and seven, isn't it? And sharp intake of breath from me, and I say, "Well, if you want that, it's going to cost another fifty percent more, fifty percent more." Yeah. Um, or you can install a copy of Chrome and just allow this app to be opened in it. And they've done that. Done. You just you just have a shortcut on the desktop to the application, just like a normal Windows, if it was not a web app but an actual desktop app, and you double click and it opens in Chrome. So all other URLs are basically blocked apart from this one. Yes. 
Just it looking at the um, Wikipedia page. So whilst Internet Explorer 6 isn't even listed on the main Internet Explorer page, there is a page for Internet Explorer 6. And there's a, a market, Internet Explorer market share little table. So apparently Internet Explorer 6 has a 4.4 market share. Internet Explorer 7, 2.14. And then it goes up to Internet Explorer 8 has the biggest market share of all of the Internet Explorer versions at 20%. And I would hazard a guess, but I think the NHS accounts for a significant proportion <laughs> yeah, of that say. IE market yeah. share, Internet yeah. Explorer 6. And actually, it's not just the UK. So they have this problem in the US as well, I understand. Really? Yeah. In hospitals. So I get that one in, and it's just it's just oh god you 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 were in at the start you didn't even need, you did the word as soon as you started saying internet and then the word e yeah. you were in <laughs> the letter e get so, in yeah so that's that's definitely in um, but I think it's a I think this Internet Explorer issue is actually a bit of a parable for medical technology really mm. it's the fact that you know things do change and your systems have to go with those changes you can't. You know, you can't just install the fireplace and expect it to last for 30 years. You can't just install a piece of software. You can install the fireplace, but software is not like a fireplace that you put in your living room. You know, it's going to, it's the market, the the way things are constantly changing. And if you want to take advantage of those changes, if you want to, you know, be innovative and all these things, then you have to go with it. Yeah. No, I completely agree. If you don't, then you're stuffed. I just, I just think that seeing Internet Explorer 6 on a machine, or even IE7, to be honest with you, if I see any IE7 or IE6 on a, on a hospital machine, I just think that's it's just so symbolic for the state of NHS IT. You know, this, this browser is over 10 years old, and it's still being used vehemently, and it's very difficult to convince people otherwise that you should upgrade this browser. Um, and I just think it's just ridiculous. It's just It's just really symbolic of a, a greater problem within NHS IT that things move too slowly and people are too concerned about minutiae and problems that they can't actually prove. And there's no evidence. We're so used to evidence-based medicine, but there's no evidence-based IT policy. It's all based on <laughs> on sort of hearsay, scaremongering, and you know what, what the IT manager feels is appropriate and how much work people want to do that month. Well, that and you've, that the last one is particularly, you know, it's just easier to to keep with the thing that works and not take any risks. And I almost um, put—I almost was going to propose IT managers going to Room One Hundred and One, but I realised that that was unfair. It was unfair for me to you know to think that I could generalise because there are some fantastic IT managers that will really get on board with projects and really actually understand what doctors facing are willing to work with them and they're engaged. They want to do to great work, but but conversely, there are many that actually uh, are very uh, either not in touch. Or just not open to to really embracing new technologies, new ways of working, and making things better. Yeah. So that's going in. It, oh, it's definitely that. That's going in more than any of the other ones, I think. Beautiful. Get in there. Get in there, I six. So we've had three each. I think we should do this on a monthly basis. It's been very therapeutic for me. Yeah, I feel a lot better. Yeah. I'm gonna sleep better tonight. <laughs> Uh, no, it felt good. I, I enjoyed it. So maybe we'll do another one of these again in the future. Maybe bring someone else on to be the judge or something. I don't know. I've got a very long list though. Yeah. Got a very long could be It could be a whole separate podcast. Yeah, I got the two big ones off my chest. Not all of them are in. I'll have to bring, I have to bring back the patient revolution 
we'll have to call so we'll have to create a new podcast just called you know medical room 101 or something that's a really good idea and then we could just have one you know one ish one one thing, topic one topic we'll just rant about oh. it for an hour and a half exactly yeah. be great i'm all up for that let's do it let's do it another project that won't happen <laughs> because we haven't got we haven't got time uh, uh. <laughs> we haven't got time and basically we'll generate too many unread emails in our inbox and Stephen will ask for a fixed fee quote <laughs> yeah yeah that'll be the state and there'll be a whole big media scare about it when we eventually do do it yeah and it won't be patient revolution friendly definitely not so it won't have been peer-reviewed either, that's for sure. Yeah, it definitely won't be peer-reviewed. <laughs> well, that might be its redeeming feature. Okay. Right. So we've come to the end of our podcast. We hope it's you've enjoyed. Fun. We hope you've enjoyed our Stephen and my return to Digital Doctor. Um, next podcast is... I don't know, actually. I think the next mm. pod, uh, podcast is with Wai Kiong and martin murphy and martin murphy is the nhs it director for wales that should be and they're going to they're going to be talking about electronic patient health records i might take a trip up to birmingham soon see how nish is getting on up there oh yeah nish we need to get nish on yeah i'm gonna go up and see see what birmingham doing for their it i think that'd be good that'd be a good little trip to make you could do a little a little live a little live podcast yeah like a really sort of from the cold face yeah grab and go yeah, exactly. So he's typing his password for the seventh time into the <laughs> NHS computer. <laughs> oh, and denied. <laughs> denied. Internet Explorer 6 has crashed. <laughs> or been hacked from China. Yeah. Okay, that's the end of this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. I've been Ed Wallet, and I've been joined by Stephen Wing and we'll see you again soon. See you again. Bye-bye. Bye. Pulse.